House Democrats want to take from the rich school districts and give to the poor. The state auditor looks into her crystal ball and sees deeper cuts or more taxes and getting steamed up over tea parties. These topics and more this week on Columbus on the Record. From the nationwide studio at WOSU at COSIDE, this is Columbus on the Record, WOSU-TV's weekly analysis of the top stories affecting Central Ohio. Joining guest host Karen Kassler this week, Laura Bischoff, State House Bureau reporter for the Dayton Daily News, Joe Hallett, senior editor at the Columbus Dispatch, Joseph Moss, chairman of the Ohio Hispanic Coalition, and Betty Montgomery, former auditor and attorney general for the state of Ohio. Hi, I'm Karen Kastler of the State House News Bureau for Ohio Public Radio and Television. Once again, very pleased to be filling in for Mike Thompson this week. The Democrats who dominate the Ohio House mostly agree with the governor, but they can also write when they see the need, and they have just written their own version of Governor Strickland's education budget, which gives districts more flexibility in meeting mandates, extends the phase-in from eight to ten years, and perhaps most importantly, changes the governor's original school funding formula. Laura Bischoff, it looks like they think that poorer school districts need more money. Oh, absolutely, and it, it makes more sense what they've rolled out um, just this last week. Um, I think, though, that there, you know, there's some other key points to be, to be made there. First off, uh, they're still going to stick with the plan to go for all-day kindergarten that's going to start in the fall of 2010. Some school districts can still get a waiver if, they, if they're short on staff or classroom space. And that the um, whole idea of more flexibility. More flexibility, right. And uh, what I think the kids will really be interested in is uh, calamity days are going to be pared down from five down to one. So if there's more than one snow day in the, in, or, or wind day or whatever, uh, they'll have to make it up at the end of the school year or, or during spring break or maybe even Saturdays. Um, that'll be hugely unpopular with the kids, but it does get four extra class days, uh, four extra days in the classroom each school year. Well, I've talked to some superintendents who think there's no problem with this, that they, they don't want to do calamity days because they say it takes away time from classroom participation and everything. So I guess that's probably, like you said, not going to go over well with the kids, but it might go there over well with the district. Ohio. <laughs> we get fog days uh, in the fall, and Ashtabula County is going to get the, the uh, snow days, so... Well, now, they, you know, well. You, just, you make them up when it's June, or you go a little bit earlier in August. I, you know. Well, and Strickland wanted to extend the school year anyway by ten years by the end of this whole ten thing. Years. Ten years. Ten, <laughs> ten years. days. Ten days. This this gets four of those ten of no twenty days. He wanted to go to twenty twenty extra days. Mm -hmm. This this gets four of those days uh, at pretty much no extra cost. So why did the Democrats rewrite this proposal? They said they were going to announce it, then they took another day, and then they announced it on Thursday instead of Wednesday. But why did they do this? I mean, what was what was wrong that they thought with Governor Strickland's original proposal? They had to rewrite it because the original proposal wasn't funded. The administration put into the budget $922 million worth of Title I, which is money from, for the poor, and IDEA funds, both federal funds, uh, that's for uh, children with disabilities. That money was not supposed to be included in the funding formula. It was in the Strickland plan. The House had to pull it out. And once they pulled that out, the, the, the money, the federal money, will still go to school districts that it's due, but it can't be used in the, in the basic funding formula. So the House saw, uh-oh, now we've got a big hole. We're losing $922 million. We have to come up with a way to fund this. And they did it by essentially cutting the formula to fund uh, f f for funding to individual school districts. 
which meant that uh, poor districts uh, were probably going to fare better off in this budget rewrite than they did under the Strickland plans, and the richer school districts are not going to do as well in this rewrite as they did in the Strickland that's plan. Right. And, and Joe is correct, and that's the one thing that jumped up, because I remember being in this program the week that the governor's plan was announced, and one of the things that was difficult to understand is the division between the, the apportionment between the, the more wealthy and the poorer districts. And I think that the House saw an opportunity to perhaps even that out a little bit. I think the House was saving their governor's bacon because the numbers were bad, uh, the assumptions were inappropriate, and and they knew they had to do something because they had even Bill Phyllis's quotas at, at that point having said something about we're going back 30 years. So they had to do something, and they all represent districts also. And I think it was a real shock when they looked at the numbers and saw how many, uh, how the poorer districts were f were faring versus the uh, uh, the wealthier districts. Now, Republicans are saying, though, that school funding will actually decrease overall, that this doesn't increase uh, anything over education funding for 2009. Well, I think, I think they're right about that. And the problem is, and this is beyond the governor's control, there is no money. The state is broke. And the only real new money in this is stimulus money from the federal government. That's right. And the irony is, is that part of his problem is, is that once he backs, once the, Demo the House Democrats backed, uh, one of the things he did was he cut uh, school uh, money for charter schools, or community schools that were charter schools. And that was his, in his commitment to do that, uh, I believe. And once uh, you do that, then you are reducing uh, overall funding for schools generally. Uh, the, the House uh, Democrats uh, repaired that. And, uh, but nevertheless, you're still going to have less money uh, going to uh, schools as a whole. And you say less money, so let's now move on to topic number two, less money. Lots of people are making lots of predictions about deficits, the housing market, the economy in general. But State Auditor Mary Taylor's prediction that the state budget would be nearly $8 billion in the red two years from now got some notice for two reasons. It's very scary, and it's very different from Governor Strickland's projections. So, Betty Montgomery, you are a former state auditor. Uh, what do you think of Mary Taylor's projections here? Are you looking at the same crystal ball that she is? Well, I think I think all of us know that uh, this budget has the feel of kicking the can down the road a bit and uh, a long way. Um, and I, I'm not sure that they have any real. There's been some fairly rosy predictions in the out years to try to make that deficit look smaller. But at the end of the day, it, it does look like the numbers are at this point look pretty uh, uh, legitimate. Uh, I know that the governor has some concerns about her coming out and saying, uh, making those comments, but... Because um, it is kind of unusual for an auditor to make a budget projection like this. I mean, that's what we have a budget well, I mean, director for, I, it is it? It is, obviously, uh, the battle will be about uh, Republican versus Democrat, but she is the, um, having been in that position uh, and having been accused of, when I failed, when, when I was accused of failing on an audit, uh, uh, you, you're in a position where sometimes you just have to comment on language uh, and, and numbers, uh, particularly in this kind of environment. I'm not so naive to believe that there weren't some politics behind Mary Taylor's yes. uh, uh, pronouncement. But uh, on this issue, she does have credibility. She's the first CPA to be uh, a state auditor. Uh, she has a degree in finance. She took a look at this, and she monetized something that everybody knew was going to occur. There's $7 billion of one-time money 
in the Strickland budget. In two years, that's going to go away. Plus, the economy is not going to grow at the rate the Strickland administration is predicting. So what she is saying is that two years hence, we're going to have this big hole in the budget. And the Strickland response, I think, was a bit over the top. Rather than address the issue of the whole of the budget, which everybody knows is going to happen, he accused her of, of proposing a tax increase, which she did not do. So he actually, though, also in his evening news conference, wanted to know what Republicans, including Mary Taylor, wanted correct. him to do. That, that's correct. That if they had a better idea, he wanted to hear it. That's what he said. And I think that, that was actually the basis of his objection. I think he was inviting the Republicans to make some suggestions as to how this was supposed to be done, not just say, well, we're going to have a deficit and it's, it's all your fault and the only way to get out of it is by means of a tax increase, well, which, is, which is, I think, what was suggested by I think Ms. the Taylor. Republicans are going to get their chance because I see this budget, I think the House did a pretty good rewrite with this budget, Strickland's budget. I think it will get no votes in the House and that will signal to the Republican, their Republican brethren who control the Senate, that this budget is messed up and you guys fix it. Well, that'll put the onus on the Senate Republicans to change this thing, but there is no money to make these changes. So, yeah, yeah. and I, I think one of the things that uh, the Republicans have said is that one of the things that has to happen here is we have had no major uh, revamping of government, I think, since the World War II. And, and there doesn't seem to be a minus sign on the calculator. Uh, it's all been sort of adding or well, sort no, of rearranging. Well, people will tell you that he's cut 3,000 state workers' jobs since uh, the last 18 months or so. As long as we have in front of us an array of many departments, uh, some of which uh, have functions that can be included in other departments, I mean, we're still basically working on the same organizational structure we've had for decades. And um, it would require a huge revamping. But it's, I mean, if there is ever a time that it has to happen, it should have happened in these last couple of years. And, and frankly, um, I think uh, Mary Taylor uh, did a responsible thing in that there's always been a concern in the last several months as to whether the numbers are, are real. And she... She certainly is experienced in government and, and sees the numbers, uh, sees the I, numbers I now. Thi I think that the federal stimulus money buys the state leaders two years' time to try to make these, these um, tough choices that are, gonna, that, are, that are there. I mean, Strickland said at his press conference, hey, you know, we were at the cliff uh, just back in December. He said we had like a $7.4 billion hole in the budget and we have to do something. The, he lobbied for federal stimulus money that, you know, grabbed the state and pulled it out of the tailspin. But everybody knows that you know, two years from now, there, the, it's going to be back to back to the ugly stage. And I think that was a correct response by the governor, rather than say Mary Taylor wants me to raise taxes. Uh, the the correct response, which he did articulate, was, "Look, we have this one-time federal stimulus money. What do you want me to do? Not use it? Of course, we've got to use it. I've got to take care of the here and now. I got to make sure that we can fund this budget so that the quality of life for Ohioans does not erode." And then, once we take care of this, then we'll have to worry about the future. But let's take care of the here and now. He certainly does have a few things that don't seem to be looking up. I mean, unemployment is up again this month, uh, at least the latest report. And then DHL to, uh, today, Friday, announcing that they were going to go ahead and pull everything out of Wilmington. And so, not so good. Yeah, <laughs> and then the you've got the unemployment <laughs> figures are the highest since April of 1984. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's significant. 
Well, back to the topic of money again. We seem to be hitting on that topic here. As many Ohioans headed to the post office on tax day, well, thousands of others around the state hope to deliver a message through tea parties, tax protests that used symbols associated with the American Revolution. Now, no one really likes paying taxes, but the bailouts and spending plans seem to be triggering a new round of anti-tax feelings. But Joe Moss, were taxes the only target here? No, and that's what I was kind of dying to discuss with the group here, because I think uh, certainly the issue of big government, as aside from the military and so on, is a perfectly legitimate topic for the American people to engage in and to demonstrate or, or anything else. But, and I don't want to offend anybody, but the rallies, and I followed the rallies throughout the country, they had the, the, the feeling of a, of a white power rally. As a matter of fact, they were advancing topics that had nothing to do with money, which is what we've been discussing about. I saw uh, posters and banners talking about uh, guns, other ones uh, about religion, uh, uh, calling the president, uh, uh, oh, there was one impeach Hussein Obama, and so on. I think that, that this is a dissatisfied group, a nucleus perhaps, that represents that 10% minority in the United States uh, that aligns itself with, with these kinds of general topics. I think the money issue, the spending issue, not even a taxation issue, was but an excuse for them to demonstrate. You know, I think I think Joe is right about this. I think that re if this were just a Republican thing, they missed the mark in that it should have been remained on the tax issue and the tax and spend issue and the question of the budget. That's that's the Republican issue. The, uh, when it expands into all these other things, then it does begin to look an awful lot like a collection of dissidents uh, and uncomfortable people who are uncomfortable with everything. But the truth of the matter is, as I was walking past the protests uh, to my car the other day, um, I looked around and I thought there were all different ages. Uh, and and I was getting with a former re Democrat legislator said, I looked around and they didn't all look like, quote, Republicans to me. He commented that his favorite um, uh, sign was, I'll pay my taxes when you give me my cabinet post. Which I thought that at least had a little humor to the... Well, I think one of the unfortunate things that happened to what could have been a really uh, significant bipartisan uh, or nonpartisan event was that some of the leading conservative talk show hosts glommed on to this. Uh, Sean Hannity, uh, Rush Limbaugh... They were at these rallies. Rush they were Limbaugh, almost hosting right, some and of made these it rallies. an anti-Obama event. Well, we all know that uh, under George W. Bush, the... The deficit exploded, and it's now exploding even more under Obama with the stimulus. But they, uh, if if the theme was anti-tax, anti-government, they neglected to uh, take into consideration some facts, and that is that as a result of tax cuts in Ohio over the last five years, um, Ohioans will have four hundred eighty-six million dollars more in their pockets next year. That was done by both Republican, by a Republican administration and kept by Strickland. As you mentioned earlier, there are 3,000 fewer state employees um, now than there were last year. And uh, we, under the last two governors, Republican and Democrat, we have had the lowest growth budgets in, two y in the last 40 years. So this fervor, this anti-tax fervor, might be without some justification well, because... And, and Joe, you've made a point here where we may be getting to a point where we can't talk about, we have to talk about how much less in terms of services that we expect from our government, that we really have gotten to the point where we have done more with less and we now can't do any more with less. 
to me, the legitimate point of this whole, uh, whatever they were called, uh, uh, the rallies, yeah, tea parties, was had to do with this legacy we're leaving to our children, uh, this legacy of debt. I saw in USA Today that uh, our unfunded mandates for programs like Social Security and Medicare are now amount to about $525,000 per household in this country. And that, I think, was part of these protests, and that, to me, was the most legitimate part of these protests. And, and, and in fa I, I think it's a very legitimate, had they na kept it narrow, uh, I, d I, I also think it's unfair to think that it's not, there is a strong grassroots part of, of this, not just sort of ginned up through the conservative talk show hosts did that, but there, I think it is touched because the state tax level may have reduced itself, but when you look at local taxes, uh, what's happened in, in uh, uh, levies for schools and... We have a lot of places have a lot of municipal that can levy taxes. We have a lot of tax uh, entities that have raised taxes at the same time the state is trying to decrease its, its tax but, burden. But studies show that Ohio is in the middle of tax, in the middle of the pack of the states in, in its state and local tax burden. I, I think it's just the national... Uh, the national uh, observation that we have burdened our children and grandchildren. I agree with you, Joe. Well, that. looking forward a little bit, but still talking about money. We are in that quiet early stage of next year's big races where we can't judge the candidates on their campaigns yet, so the yardstick now is fundraising and money. And some might be wondering how Jennifer Bruner is measuring up against her rivals for the seat Senator George Voinovich holds. A report this week shows the Secretary of State has raised $207,000. Her Democratic opponent, Lee Fisher, the Lieutenant Governor, has a million dollars, and former Republican Republican Congressman Rob Portman has $1.7 million in his campaign chest. So, Joe Hallett, what do you make of all this? Well, I make that it was not a good day for Jennifer Bruner. Uh, you think? Yeah. <laughs> the, these are, you know, these. The, this is the earliest tax report or fundraising reporting period in the Senate race. Uh, Lee Fisher, as we expected, roared out of the starting gate with a million dollars, and Jennifer Bruno raised only 207000 Now, she rightly said, you know, you can't judge, you can't predict the winner of the Kentucky Derby by who's ahead in the first turn. <laughs> and I expect that she, she will raise more money. I don't think she's going to get out of this race, uh, despite all the pressure on her. Fisher has the support of the governor, uh, uh, I think, with the, par uh, the party structure, pretty much. And the, so more pressure is on Bruno to get out. But... Why should she? If there are more than two male candidates in this race, she's going to be in pretty good shape. And right now there are l at least two male candidates. Joe. And uh, w one other thing, on the other side, Rob Portman has a boatload of money. He's the, fair, uh, the uh, favored Republican candidate. Three and the only announced three million. $3.7 million in the bank right mm -hmm. now. But uh, last week I talked to a Cleveland car dealer named uh, Tom Ganley, who's going to enter the race. And he's a millionaire. And he said, I can afford to fund my own campaign. So Rob Portman, I think, thought he was going to get a free pass to the Republican nomination. Now he might be uh, forced to spend a little of his primary money. You know, if right the car dealer guy gets in, I think then Mary Taylor might seriously consider getting in. Because if it's a three-way race, and again, she's the only female mm -hmm. in the race, mm -hmm. you know, she could, she could uh, pull an upset. You know, it's going to be it's going to be a bloodbath. I think this is going to be is. the most interesting race in the country. And by the way, Jennifer is not 
getting out of this race. And I wasn't overly concerned when I saw the 200,000 versus the 1 million and so on. And I was less concerned after I checked into some of her campaign uh, strategy. And she also has a list of 16,000 new people that have signed on to help with the campaign who really have not been tapped for contributions yet. So I, th I think that it's just way, way too early. And we're talking about 2010. Yeah, I think, I think Jennifer is going to be a formidable candidate. I think I agree with Joe and, and both Joes that, that it's quite likely she wins this primary. Uh, I, when I ran against Lee Fisher, he had over a million dollars in the bank, and I had just a couple hundred. Th I, had, I had maybe several thousand dollars. Mm. Lee is a formidable fundraiser, but he spends a lot of money in his campaign. He, he's very top-heavy in his campaign. Jennifer's got tapping national. She's got the ability to get Emily's list, though they haven't done it yet. Mm -hmm. She has uh, friends in high places all over the country. She Caroline is Kennedy yes. came to town and had a fundraiser she is, for her. She profiles and courage winner. She, she has a lot going for her. And as the only woman in that race, uh, I think she has a very strong chance, despite her numbers right now, of coming out of that primary. Plus, liberals vote in Democratic primaries, and she is the most liberal candidate in the field. Uh, and she will, I think, have some national money to, to spend. Now, the idea of Lee Fisher still being lieutenant governor, is he going to be able to use that as a campaign strategy for very long, or is he potentially, I mean, he's going to stay lieutenant governor until he's, you know, no longer lieutenant governor, but isn't the governor, Governor Strickland, when he announces, isn't he going to have a new lieutenant governor so Lee Fisher can't get out of the race? And Yeah, well, he has pretty much foreclosed Fisher's ability to drop out of the race and still be on the ticket in 2010 <laughs> because the governor said, I very soon will announce a new running mate, and obviously it's not going to be Lee Fisher. So and who is it going to be? Well, we keep hearing Tim Ryan, Congressman Tim Ryan, uh, but that makes no sense to me. I just don't know why he would uh, for, forego a, a really um, promising career in Congress. He's moving up the Democratic ranks very quickly to become second banana to, uh, to Ted Strickland. And lieutenant governor is not a good place to run for higher office. For Unless him. he's trying to follow a Mike DeWine's strategy and... Right. move for higher office. So well, Mike DeWine, as you recall, ran once statewide before he lost to, um, and he lost to John Glenn and then came back two years later mm -hmm. and won. So um, it's usually the formula. So I think the consensus here is that there's no way Jennifer Bruner is out of this race, even though the numbers at first no look a little scary. No. No. She doesn't strike me as a mind changer. She doesn't. Uh -uh. I think once mm -hmm. she makes up her mind, she sticks with it. Look what she did. She was on the bench, great judge, and uh, stepped down in order to run for this. I think what could be interesting is if Governor Strickland and, and Chris Redfern, the chairman of the Democratic Party, and others try and dry up her money. Yes. Uh, and uh, they might be able to do that in Ohio, I'm not sure they'll be able to do that nationally. Well, and doesn't a lot of her support come from outside of the state? Yeah, oh yeah, she's the darling of national liberals for sure, uh, who thought that the election of was 2006 stolen. was, 2004 was stolen by Ken Blackwell, so. But she's got more appeal than just, uh, you know, outside liberal groups. And I think that, I I think that yeah. she, like Joe says, she's got 16,000 new people signed up and and uh, you know that shows that maybe she she has a different establishment to call on to get foot soldiers to to work the you know to do the lit drops and to do all the all the campaign 
uh, you know, guts. Well, she's had uh, some certainly some vulnerabilities in these last two years that are going to be highlighted, and, and what I agree with Joe is going to be a very bloody battle. Um, anybody who knows her knows she's very, she meets people well, she's uh, well regarded, and I think she's going to be a formidable candidate. And, and of course, Lee's going to have to carry the baggage of, of, he's been state development director for two years, and we continue to lose jobs. That's why he's backed out of Department of Development, I'm sure. Uh. Well, we can talk about this all day. We've all talked day. about it for a while here, but now we have to move on to our final segment, our off-the-record comments from the panel, the final thoughts or predictions for the week ahead. And let's start with you, Laura Bishop. Well, I would say that uh, the, the uh, latest version of the school funding plan will not be the last version of the school funding plan. It's probably going to go through five or six more versions before we finally get to the, the final one. So, you know, sit tight, don't hold your breath, and, uh, you know, hang on. All right, Joe Hallett, yours. A uh, couple of things. One is that um, despite the high anxiety uh, among Republicans about John Kasich, whether or not he's going to run for governor, he will enter the race officially in June. And also, I think we're going to have a Democratic primary for Attorney General between Delaware County Prosecutor David Yost and Mike DeWine, the former U.S. Senator. And John Kasich had a presence at uh, the Tea Party that was at the State House, so yeah, certainly wanted to, I guess, get his name out there before he officially announces. Let's move on to Joe Moss. Karen, as a Cuban American, I was encouraged by the president's initiatives to ease travel restrictions to Cuba, and I am one of really a growing number, a majority of Americans born in Cuba who believe that additional engagement with the Cuban government is the way to promote democracy in that island nation. Cuba has responded, actually in the last 48 hours, in a very positive fashion, encouraging or proposing dialogue without preconditions or prohibited topics. This is going to be an interesting topic for the next few weeks and months. And finally, Betty Montgomery, your first show here. Let's uh, hear your final word. So I can't say that I think the Mud Hens are going to be beat the Clippers to <laughs> this weekend. You could say I it. I could say that. This I'm from a, a Northwest Ohio, so I have <laughs> to at least uh, uh, tip my hat to that. And then also predict and join in, in Joe's prediction that I think you're going to see uh, the Republican ticket coming together uh, before in the next several months, uh, next two months. And I think we are going to have a very spirited uh, campaign. All right. Well, that is Columbus on the Record for this week. You can continue the conversation at our website, wosu.org slash COTR. I'm Karen Kastler. Mike Thompson will be back in this chair next time. Have a good week. <laughs>